from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos. This is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 11, Invasion of Astro Monster. G-Fans and Kaiju lovers, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Nathan Marchand. And I'm Brian Scherfel. And in today's episode, we will be looking at the fan-favorite Showa-era film, Invasion of Astro Monster, or as it's more commonly called, Godzilla vs. Monster Zero. This is definitely a fan favorite, and I really love it too. It's one of my favorites in the whole series. Yeah, it's incredibly fun and, you know, it sets a lot of things in motion that you, you see repeated throughout the series. Our related topic for this episode is the foreign policy dimension of the Zillion invasion. All right, with that, let's move on to our film description. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is the defender of Earth. He often displays anthropomorphisms, such as his famous victory dance. Later, he's mind-controlled by the Zillions and sent back to Earth as a weapon of conquest. However, once the control is broken, he battles King Ghidorah in defense of the planet. Rodan is also a defender of Earth. Like Godzilla, he displays some human characteristics, though his are subtler. He, too, is mind-controlled by the Zillions and sent to attack Earth. When the control is broken, he helps Godzilla fight Ghidorah. King Ghidorah, or Monster Zero as the Zillions call him, at first appears to be a malevolent destroyer, but is revealed that he was being mind-controlled by the Zillions all along in this film. He attacks Earth with Godzilla and Rodan as the Zillions thrall, though he does fight Godzilla and Rodan on his own volition after their control is broken. Astronauts Fuji and Glenn act as liaisons between the Zillions and Earth, and they're suspicious that the aliens have ulterior motives. Namikawa is a zillion spy, designed as a human businesswoman, who has shunned emotions in favor of her computer programming. Tetsuo is a young inventor dating Fuji's sister, and he creates a blaring alarm called the Lady Guard. His objective is to sell it to make enough money to marry Haruno. The controller, or the commandant in the Japanese version, is the cold, calculating, and deceptive leader of Planet X, who enacts an elaborate plan to conquer Earth. The human and kaiju plots have relatively low interaction. Most of the story is focused on the zillions' machinations and the characters' personal lives. When the monsters are present, they're being manipulated by the aliens most of the time. After promising to give humanity the cure for cancer, the zillions transport Godzilla and Rodan to Planet X to fight King Ghidorah. This turns out to be a ruse. The three of them attack Earth under zillion control, meeting resistance from the JSDF and other Earth militaries who fail to stop them. Tetsuo and Dr. Sakurai design technology based on the Lady Guard that broadcasts an ear-splitting noise around the world. This makes the aliens destroy themselves, or escape into time, as the controller says, and frees the monsters from the aliens' control. Godzilla and Rodan battle Ghidorah, the three of them tumbling into the ocean. Ghidorah emerges and retreats into space. Sekizawa's script for this film is a bit more complicated than his previous ones, and with several subplots, the Zillion's subterfuge, and several layers of symbolism. All of this converges at the end as usual, though. 
Production values started to go down with this film, though the budget remained healthy. Tsuburaya and company still created highly detailed miniatures and the barren landscape of Planet X. The zillion flying saucers are well designed and executed. While this is a new Godzilla suit made for this film, the suits for Rodan and Ghidorah were reused from the previous movie. Unfortunately, this marks the first time stock footage, quote-unquote, was used in a Godzilla movie as shots from Rodan, Mothra, and Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster were used in the sequence where the kaiju attack Earth. The tone remains light, however there is a fair amount of gravity in the human plotline. The Zillions are presented as a serious threat and powerful enemies. Namikawa's execution for falling in love with Glenn is presented as a tragedy. On the other hand, the monsters often act silly and provide comic relief. There's plenty of fantasy despite all of the film's sci-fi trappings. Though the film does have new stylistic elements compared to the previous films, the studio didn't take all that many risks when creating it. The film is an expansion of style for the Godzilla series because it's the first alien invasion-related film. It was influenced by American science fiction films, most notably 1956's Earth vs. the Flying Saucers. The story takes place in the near future, the year 196X, which makes it the first Godzilla film to jump ahead in time. This film was made to capitalize on the success of Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster by reintroducing most of the monsters from that film to attract kaiju fans. American producer Harry G. Saperstein wanted to give the film a greater international appeal by, among other things, including a faster-paced story and an American actor. The film sold 3.8 million tickets during its initial run in Japan in 1965, and then 300,000 more when reissued in 1971. It grossed $3 million when released on Double Bill with Toho's War of the Gargantuas in 1970. To this day, it remains a fan-favorite entry from the Showa era. The dubbed version is three minutes shorter than the original. Most of the changes were edits to the monster and zillion UFO footage. However, the scenes of the zillions speaking in their native language were removed. Some of the sound effects and music were changed or rearranged. Most notably, this version includes actor Nick Adams' English dialogue. He was dubbed in Japanese in the original version. The film shows an international space program in the near future. When the Zillion's ultimatum is issued, the world population is split over whether to fight or surrender, leading to panic and riots. The Zillion's shunning of emotion in favor of computer programming brings Namikawa into conflict with her own people because she discovered emotion by falling in love with Glenn. The deceptive zillions are a subtle expression of the Japanese sentiment about invaders. With their offer of a cure for cancer, they prove the old saying, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. There's the idea that even the smallest things, like an inventor's toy, can save the world. Ishiro Honda's trademark Brotherhood of Man theme is seen when the world bands together to repel the invaders. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast will be our opinion and discussion section of for this film. So, Brian, we've already mentioned that we rather enjoy this movie. Yeah, I really love this one so much. The early 60s is over, everybody. Now we've come to the different costumes, so to speak, of Godzilla. This, the sci-fi one, and then we end up with so many different other types of films after this. 
Uh, and it's not really as much the subject of of the films that they address, but instead it's the de- as the demographic or it's the the sort of style of the film that we get because this one's a sci-fi film. And then the mid-60s is also the tipping point for the budget health of these films, possibly. Uh, Leading up to 1970, with the end of the contract actor system and the subsequent collapse of the Japanese film industry, as we will learn later, there are many factors behind this. But that's for another time. But uh, this Godzilla film is a fantasy film with a sci-fi flavor. It's not really like a sci-fi film, in my opinion, like a straight sci-fi film, but it has the most sci-fi of anything we've gotten to yet. This is set in uh, the year 1960X, which is the future. So it's the first film that we have set in the future, too. No, it's the near future. Yeah, really close future. But the, uh, the Godzilla films are still fantasy films for the most part. The most the Showa series gets is about three years later in uh, the 1968 film. Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of science fiction, and I, and I love science fiction films, but particularly some of the, you know, the old school science fiction films. And really, out of any of the Godzilla movies, this is the one that feels the most like that, you know, that old school 50s, 60s sci-fi movie that you would see a lot from, you know, from American studios at the time, which is no surprise considering that there was a strong influence from those types of films in this. You know, I love the UFOs and their design. They're at once very much the kind of the traditional UFO designs you would see in a lot of films of this type, but they have their own distinct flavor to them. I love the sound effects and the music, yeah, you know, Fuka Bay really did try to emulate the the music that you would see in those American films, uh, you know, when he did the score for this one. You know, that kind of like that high pitch kind of stringed instrument sound that you would see. That's supposed to make everything sound kind of paranormal. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, and then the other the other movies that they probably saw besides Earth versus Flying Saucers would probably be uh, like Day the Earth Stood Still would be another one. But I can imagine the creators of this movie seeing some of these American sci-fi films in, involving UFOs and all this, and and then saying, you know, we can make a really good, interesting new kind of Godzilla film with this. It's like a it's like a skin for the film, where where it's like a or a flavor. You know, we're getting the many different flavors of Godzilla that they're starting to introduce to us. This isn't the first Godzilla movie to feature extraterrestrials. We had disembodied aliens in the previous movie, but this is the first time we have a concrete alien race in a Godzilla movie. Honestly, I think probably out of all of the aliens that have appeared in Godzilla movies, these guys are definitely, the Zillions are definitely the best remembered out of all of them and the most easily identifiable. And they have, you know, a really unique design to them, you know, with the gray and black jumpsuits and the skull caps with the little antennas on top. And (laughs) I love their... I love the visors that they have. When I was a kid, I used to joke about how they were alien space geeks. Um, I can't help but wonder if Gene Roddenberry and the creators of Star Trek The Next Generation saw these guys and then stole that design for Geordi LaForge. I was just about to say that. It does look a lot like LaForge. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but they're, they're such a such a well-realized race. You know, they're they're all about efficiency and computerization mechanization they have a very depersonalized society you know that you know, for the zillions 
as far as we know, none of them have names. Everything either has a title or it has a number. Ghidorah is Monster Zero. Godzilla and Rodan are Monster Zero One and Monster Zero Two. You know, and the only character who really gets a name is the controller, or in the Japanese version, he's called the Commandant. I always thought controller sounded like a better name anyway. I, 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 Commandant has a completely different connotation to me. <laughs> but, so he's the only one who has anything even resembling a name. And all of the stuff that we learn about them, you know, the shunning of emotion and, and embracing computer programming and all that, all of this is stuff that's shown to us as opposed to told to us, which is a really good way to tell a story, particularly a, a story like this. And, one of the, and this propensity toward efficiency is... Actually, part of the things that becomes the Zillions undoing, because as soon as that is disrupted, they don't know what to do with themselves. They're unable to, I guess you could say, think on their uh, think on their feet. They're once, totally dependent on technology. Yeah. And once they lose that, they don't know what to do with themselves. I would just like to say, I love the controller in this movie. What do you think, Brian? He's a very effective character. <sighs> Maybe it's just because I grew up watching the dub version. But I love the dub voice for him. You know, this very, very monotone like this. I am controller of Planet X. I mean, it, it, it's such a wonderful voice. I mean, the original actor is great, too. But I do really, that voice is always what sticks in my head. I like the original version voice a little bit better. And I'm more used to that now because I've been watching the Japanese version so many times lately. But the I, I think the, the voice in the English version is good, though. It, it's very alien sounding. Mm-hmm. I do like the alien language that they use, though, which is, I think, more prevalent in the Japanese version. It was completely cut out in the Americanized version, actually. And for what I read online, it was improvised by the actors. It sounds good, though. I think it's it sounds that sounds even more alien. It actually kind of sounds like like some sort of garbled sound that you would get out of a computer almost, mm-hmm. which is very fitting for them. In a lot of ways, I think the controller really exemplifies everything about the zillions as a race with his monotone voice and his his incredible ability to just stay cool under pressure for the most part and the way i kind of look at how he runs things is like he's like a cpu in a computer and all of the rest of the zillions are like the the various components that he has coordinated like the drones yeah yeah it's not quite a hive mind but yeah that's why i say he's a cpu as opposed to like a queen bee or something like that Mm mm-hmm and there's some some really nice foreshadowing that they do with uh, with the zillions involving the controller, like when Ghidorah is attacking and Fuji and Glenn are there, and uh, the the controller is getting a report from one of his men about their hydrogen oxide plant taking damage, and then he switches it so that it goes to their native language as opposed to being English, and then he puts. I don't know what else to call it other than the cone of silence, you know, kind of like in Get Smart. Yeah, and they hit their heads on it. Yeah, and the Fuji and Glenn can't hear anything. So he's obviously hiding something. Although something I noticed while I was watching it is that, you know, the Zillions are supposed to be unemotional, almost robotic. And yet when Fuji and Glenn leave Planet X, the controller does a little maniacal laugh. I just find that really interesting. It's like, wait a minute. Are you kind of breaking out of the mold there a little bit? Or are you just, or is he just like, he's like this one little moment where he decides to just let a little bit of emotion come out. I guess we needed to give a, a sort of flag to the audience to be able to say, okay, this is really a total deception. 
and wait for, you know, just be prepared for that when it blows up. Yeah, I still I thought it was an interesting little moment. While we're on the subject of languages and everything, I still prefer the Japanese version, but I wish that they could make a new version where everything is in Japanese except for Nick Adams and he speaks English. So we would be adopting the Final Wars style because in a movie that totally works instead of having to dub Nick Adams. That's actually one of the things that actually kind of makes me want to watch this one dubbed is because I can actually hear what Nick Adams was saying and he looks and sounds kind of odd being dubbed in Japanese. So I guess now I understand how foreigners feel when they watch their movies dubbed into English. But the other thing that throws me off is I know that the the subtitled lines that we're seeing for Nick Adams are a lot different than what he's actually saying. You know, the, the scene that I think of the most is later in the movie, right after he has witnessed the execution of Namikawa, and he has that big emotional outburst. The subtitle lines are drastically different than what he says in uh, in his original English, which was he actually insults the Zillions. He calls them rats. But that's not in the subtitled version. Yeah, and now if that, if that movie was made now, I don't think that that would have been changed. It would be a lot more accurate. And I would just have him still speaking English and then them speaking Japanese right next to him. Something else I really like about the Zillions is they have some old school villain uh, trappings to them. You know, they have trap doors. It's yeah, that's wonderful. really old school. Yeah, yeah, that's really old school. I was I I had forgotten about that until I rewatched this movie. You know, and then you had Tetsuo trying to knock on their door, and then just like he just drops. I'm like, trap doors, classic. And I love the little elevator things that they have on Planet X. Is they kind of the way they're kind of presented is that, you know, they pop up when they have little bits of ground on top of them. And then, right. They pop out of the, out of the surface of a uh, planet, uh, X. planet X, but then they kind of sit there when Gator is coming down and then they almost have a little bit of personality because they kind of drop down. It's like, are they gophers? <laughs> you know, like pop up out of the ground and they go right back down. Oh, danger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then everything seems to come out of the rocks and then they can have it go back in like the, the, the device that, disabled the force fields that were around Rodan and Godzilla. And then it does this little job and then it, it goes back into the surface of the planet again or into the, into the rock that it came out of. Yeah. It's like I said, there's such a well realized race. And I just want to say, I wrote this down as just as a funny note, but the earth commander that they have who, when he's in his civilian garb as you know, the, the head of that, phony corporation that Namikawa is working for. I wrote down, he looks like Agent Smith. He does, actually. You know, with the hair and the sunglasses. He's not wearing the visor, but he has the sunglasses. I'm like, he looks like Agent Smith. <laughs> he has, like, this some kind of device that's giving him light or something, and I was like, wait, what is this? His personal tanning device or what? I don't think they really explain it. Yeah, and the other thing that was interesting is there are a couple of points he gets referred to as President. Now, I don't know if it's supposed to be he's supposed to be president of that corporation or if that's his little title in the Zillion hierarchy. Yeah, like the overlord of the Earth operations, and they just use that word. Yeah, whereas the leader of their race is called the controller. Now, what I'm trying to figure out is whether or not the Zillions are vulnerable to loud noise in general or if it's just what the Lady Guard makes because they have bars in their little prison that are soundproof, and that was one of the 
the little hints that the humans got about how they could defeat them. Did they have other soundproof things in any of their other stuff? Or is it just those bars for some odd reason? I don't know. Maybe they just wanted to make sure that prisoners never actually made a sound that reached that frequency. I think it had to do with the frequency of the sound. I think so. But it is an interesting sort of weakness because it does play into the whole computerization thing for them. You know, that really, it's an easy way to disrupt something electronic. Yeah, that's a good point. And also, I just want to say the noise that that lady guard makes is incredibly annoying. And it's it a is. Sound, that's a sound they never use again in any of these movies, and I wonder if that's why. Thank goodness. <laughs> no wonder it kills them. The house that they have that's on the island that they are operating out of, I think that's really funny. It's look like it looks like they moved that house to Japan from like Switzerland. <laughs> it's and it's also very James Bondian with the, with the trap doors and then the, the that is true the soundproof prison and having it on an island it's it's quite a quite James Bondian they are super villains when Glenn and Tetsuo they send that boat out as a decoy <laughs> then the UFO comes by really quickly and blows it up that looks extremely good. That's one of the best extremely good special effects things that I've seen ever, really, because it looks very real. I'm just impressed with the with the flying saucer effects in general in this. I think they put a lot of time and care into making those look good. I think it's it's just as good as Earth versus the Flying Saucers, but in a different way. I like how Earth versus Flying Saucers it had the the moving parts, you know, the spinning part to them around. But I think these are I like the how they're designed and and like when it lands and they come out of it that looks very polished special effects wise it does uh Subaraya and his compatriots really outdid themselves in a lot of ways with this one now the reason the for the zillions invading is actually it's clearly stated but it's also obscured a lot as well because the controller tries to put a lot of spin on things and that is water is scarce on planet X so much so that even though they have gold in abundance, they don't care because they need water and they have to synthesize their own water in order to survive. So it makes total sense that they would want to invade a planet that is what? 70% water. It's covered in 70% of the surface is covered in water. Yeah. Probably made their mouths water when they saw the Pacific ocean exists. Oh yeah. So you know, it's a very, relatable very easy to understand motivation for an invasion you have a resource we need we are going to take it and actually using the name planet x is is a very interesting choice of it's actually not original to this film it's actually a term that's been floating around actually i think for i think since the beginning of the 20th century because there was a theory long uh, long ago about there being a 10th planet in the solar system. Now, initially, that was discovered to be Pluto, but then there were still thoughts that there might be a 10th planet here, hence X, because X is the Roman numeral for 10. But even to this day, there are still people who buy into this theory and think that there is another planet way out beyond the orbit of Pluto. Yeah, like some sort of rogue planet with like possibly an orbit that's a little bit different than the ones that are around, possibly even more rogue than, than Pluto, because Pluto has a different orbit than a lot of the other planets do uh, shape-wise. 
Yeah, and it's also the term has also found its way into conspiracy theory circles. Um, usually, it's referred to as Nibiru, which is supposed to be this rogue planet with a very odd orbit that there are people who honestly believe it will eventually collide with Earth because of, of the strangeness of its orbit. It will intercept with Earth, which sounds a lot like uh, Gorath. Or uh, also when worlds collide. Yeah. So the name had been circulating around for a while, so I'm guessing that all Sekizawa was doing was just, you know, he heard the name and thought it was... You know, sounded cool, so he just decided to use it. I doubt it has anything to do with either the scientific theory or the conspiracy theories, other than the fact that it's a newly discovered planet. Yeah, I think he just grabbed a hold of the concept and thought it was a cool thing to use. In the original version of the movie, Fuji and Glenn are told that they will be sent back to Planet X to survey it. But in the dub version, it had a the much more interesting idea of them being sent back to Planet X as ambassadors. Which makes total sense, considering that they were working as liaisons between Earth and Planet X for a good portion of the first half of the movie. And I would figure that not all of the Zillions came to Earth, so not all of them blew themselves up. So there would still be Zillions left on Planet X. They don't have a leader now. Their leader's dead, as far as we know. And given what had just transpired, you would want to send people over there as peace envoys. And it seems like it's a very interesting thing. You know, as soon as you defeat your invaders, you then send two people over to make peace with your invaders. Yeah. It's an interesting concept. I don't, I'm not really sure why there are, are, there seem to be quite a few differences between the original version and the dubbed version, as far as exactly what they say. I'm not really sure why that is, but it is an interesting concept to think about. Related to technology, it's very interesting because this is one of the first Godzilla movies where technology is created on the fly in order to thwart the enemy. The scientists figure out a way to build a technology that interrupts the waves that order Godzilla, Rodan, and King Ghidorah around with. And if it weren't for the scientists inventing technology, the invasion wouldn't have succeeded. And this, of course, was dependent, though, on Namikawa telling Glenn what to do to stop the invasion. And so it was really dependent on her first, but she didn't create the technology to stop the monsters, monsters from being controlled. But she did tell Glenn that that was the only way, literally, to, to stop it. Kumi Mizuno is great in this film. This is the first film with her in it, in the movies that we've covered so far. And, of course, she plays Namikawa. She does a great job, and she's very good-looking. I mean, she's she fits the part very well. Uh, she still manages to be beautiful, despite wearing that very sci-fi-ish wig and that jumpsuit. Mm-hmm. And then she plays all the different parts of all the other Namikawas that are uh, all over the, the other place zillion women. X. Yeah. yeah. Because they all look the same, apparently. Yeah. That's never explained, but sure. <laughs> the first thing I would like to bring up uh, about Namikawa is that her and is that she and Glenn actually get to kiss in this movie. You barely get to see it. I mean, as many couples as we have seen in these movies, they you almost never see them actually be lovey-dovey with each other, actually display affection. 
Yeah, it's, we have to take what we can get with with romantic uh, subplots in these movies. But finally, we do get one uh, in, in which there's actually some sort of display here. And I, I, it's really very good. Uh, I think it works very well. And I think the relationship between them is is very interesting. It's also of note, I mean, it is a our first binational relationship. You know, we have an American man and a Japanese woman together uh, affectionately in a Japanese movie. But Namikawa is such an interesting character in this because she becomes this great vehicle for displaying the conflict and the differences between humanity and the Zillions. Because like all Zillions, she adheres to computer programming and she shuns emotions, but she lets herself get involved more than she should with Glenn because she's working as a spy. And because of that, she falls in love and she's dealing with these emotions that either she's completely unfamiliar with or she is just always shunned. And in the end, she's executed for it. It reminds me of the Borg sort of thing going on in uh, Star Trek or maybe even Seven of Nine a little bit, only she's not a hybrid, but she's able to start bridging the gap between pure computer thought versus affection. And I think that it's, it's an interesting way to, to show that. I mean, now we have Westworld and so many other shows that, that do this now, but this is a very nice early, uh, very good depiction of, of how affection can work from that direction. Well, and what makes it interesting is that it's not just something that's culturally shunned. It's considered a crime yeah, on her planet. Punishable by death, apparently. Now, obviously, they probably also were doing it because they probably thought of her as a traitor, you know, because she's you know mingling with the enemy, you know, so they probably thought she was a sympathizer. So that may have played into it as well. But the fact remains, she becomes this tragic character. She finally grew into herself, I guess, in a lot of ways. She's self-actualized. Yeah. And then she's killed for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a really terrifying thought, you know, to, you know, you're being executed for wrong think, essentially, in this. Yeah, thought crime. Yeah, thought crime. Yeah. It's kind of a Big Brother 1984 thing. A kind of a terrifying concept if you really stop and think about it, you know. But thankfully, you know, her, her death was not totally meaningless. She wasn't being... She wasn't the woman in the refrigerator necessarily because she she doesn't die just to give Glenn a motivation. She gives him something that ends up being a clue for how they can defeat uh, the Zillions. I do like the scene between Namikawa and Haruno when uh, she asks where Tetsuo is. And Namikawa, she knows, but she gives this great uh, smile and then she's like, oh, I don't know. Where could he be? And and then Haruno kind of looks at her like, huh. Yeah, because at this point, he'd been captured by the Zillions, right? Mm-hmm. It's one of the rare scenes in any Godzilla movie that we have between two women also. Another actor that I do like, though, is Akira Kubo, and he plays uh, Tetsuo in this film. He has He's actually a pretty good-looking guy, but then they, they do the very nerdish outfit and and the glasses yeah the big horn rim glasses and yeah it's it's uh it's a neat i'm sure you have already had a fun time playing that character i think it's a 
it's a very memorable character. The, this inventor who is uh, uh, in this relationship. I think it's uh, it's a cool dynamic to watch. Yeah, and you know, once again, we see Sekizawa using the brother-sister-boyfriend dynamic like he did in King Kong versus Godzilla, where you have a main character and he has, a, I'm guessing, a younger sister who's in a relationship with a boyfriend that he doesn't necessarily like. So he, you have the overprotective brother kind of saying like, I think you can do better, sis. Yeah. Although I think in this case, it's much more clearly spelled out in that Tetsuo is this kind of eccentric inventor type, probably not very rich. And that's why he's trying to sell the lady guard so he can make some money, you know, so that way he can be able to afford to marry Haruno. And to show that he's having success. Yeah, which is a very important thing when you're trying to you know, woo a lady. It's interesting to note that just like in the previous film, Godzilla and Rodan are characters. However, King Ghidorah remains the force of nature that is only into destruction. And in this case, Ghidorah is mind controlled as well for the first time. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, the, the characterization for Ghidorah hasn't changed, but you know, this is the first full movie where Godzilla, particularly, and Rodan are the good guys. Whereas in the previous movie, they start off as forces of nature and then become heroes. We're really completing the interesting process from force of nature to hero for Godzilla and Rodan. And uh, I think we've completed that now. It's very interesting to see. Although it seems like the change wasn't instantly believed by all of the humans because there are a few lines here and there where they sort of hint at the idea that Godzilla and Rodan cause trouble or are kind of destructive so I got the impression that a lot of the humans weren't going to miss them if the zillions just decided to take them to planet x and keep them and audiences having seen the original Godzilla and the original Rodan movies a lot by this point I would imagine they had uh probably I think that was the way of the of this movie being able to recognize that oh yeah these are really destructive creatures still on on a certain level. However, it is interesting to note that the humans are very quick toward the end of the movie to say we need to free Godzilla and Rodan from the Zillion's control so that they can fight Ghidorah for us. Yeah, they definitely would love uh having Godzilla and Rodan solve problems for them for sure. When you have that scene when the humans are leaving Planet X after they've defeated Ghidorah, you, they do pity the monsters because they're being left behind. And the audience is meant to pity the monsters a little bit. Yeah, and I think they're meant to sympathize with them because the audience knows that they're supposed to be the heroes, but they're being left behind on this planet. They're not home anymore. Mm-hmm. And it is sad, the fact that you just... I mean, the two of them were just sleeping and minding their own business. They get and then they wake up and they're on a on a completely foreign environment and they have to fight Ghidorah again. I mean, I'd be cranky, <laughs> you know, and then they just get left behind. But the sadness of that is definitely more than compensated for with the famous Shea dance that Godzilla performs. It's really amazing. 
when I show this to people, I tell them that maybe we should just get out that Justin Timberlake song, Can't Stop the Feeling. <laughs> this, I, I, I think that would be, that's such an appropriate song for something like this. But uh, the, I, I think that's just incredible. I like it. I do not think it is silly. I think it's awesome. And I think that was maybe the, I don't know, of any risk that's taken in this movie, this is probably the, that's probably the biggest one. It's just like, oh, it's a, that's funny that you guys did that. But, uh, but Honda wasn't all that into it, no. though, right? This is mostly Sekizawa and Tsuburaya. Well, uh, it was, uh, it was actually Nakajima's idea uh, to do it because the, the Shea Dance thing was a popular thing in Japanese culture at the time i think it had been started by a manga character and then there was a japanese comedian who had popularized it i believe and it's like the first meme that yeah you find in a godzilla movie yeah and so you know so nakajima said hey why don't i do the shea dance after i beat Ghidra?" and Subaraya loved it you know yeah the second i did too yeah and but uh honda was just like really guys you know, I think it. I think it is fun. I remember the first time I watched this movie, and that, and it came to that moment. I was just like, "What in the heck did I just watch?" I remember just going, <laughs> "Wow, that, that just, was awesome." I was like, "That just happened," you know. I, and it's sad that that never gets used again in any of these movies. It's it's something of an iconic image for fans, and you know, it's the one. It's like one of the first images that comes to mind. When uh, when you talk to people about this movie, but it never gets replicated in any uh, anywhere else. Well, I guess memes have a, a life cycle to them. Although I, have, so I guess it was just popular at the time, and so hey, let's do it. And but, I mean, it probably didn't stick around, uh, you know, perpetually in in the culture. Yeah, although I have heard that the newest Godzilla video game on the PS3 and PS4, you can make Godzilla do that. It's an unlockable move, and apparently it's a super power... It's actually an attack, it's super powerful, and it can't be blocked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in the fandom, it's big. It's still a big thing in the fandom. Everybody remembers it. Yeah. I think from now on, whenever a Godzilla fan uh, achieves a victory in whatever it is they're doing, a board game or, you know, or uh, like, you know, Jeopardy at at, at G-Fest or whatever, they should just do that when they win. As I've mentioned before, the Ifukabe score in this is absolutely fantastic and easily the most popular piece of music to come out of the soundtrack is what's commonly called the Monster Zero March, which plays during the opening credits. It's one of the seminal, I guess, Godzilla themes. Um, when when you think of you know Godzilla music, this is actually one of the first pieces that comes to people's minds yeah it's played in the opening credits to the uh, japanese version and i i love it it's one of my favorite favorite absolute marches or songs in the whole godzilla series it's really good it is first played in the original gojira from 1954 but we don't hear as much of it as we do in this and and so this one i think this movie popularized that song a lot more and and that's why i think it's more known as the as like the monster zero march or astro monster march etc i want a planet x controller costume <laughs> seriously it would look cool i would love to see you in a play in a controller costume it would look nice i think they put a lot of thought and and work into those uh especially when you look at the alien costumes from 
later movies, some of them. But I think oh these, boy. these look polished. <laughs> these look polished, I think. And also, this movie is filmed quite well. There are a lot of really interesting shots and a lot of uh, there, there's a lot of visual eye candy in in this movie. I really like it. Um, there's on a side note to that, that about five minutes and twenty two seconds into the Japanese version, it I have this flashback and I feel like I'm watching Invasion of the Neptune Men. It's <laughs> it's the scientist. He's having he's in a press conference and he's talking about space stuff and the camera's kind of at like this higher angle and everything and there is a scene just like this in Invasion of the Neptune Men and I thought oh okay and the the guy who often plays the general in these movies is instead playing the scientist this time around but that that little conference there I thought wow this is almost the exact same camera angle and everything with with uh. From Invasion of the Neptune Man, I've seen that movie uh, probably a lot more times than I, than anybody should. <laughs> but another one though is, uh, I, I I can tell that they filmed this well and they took a lot of care into it because at six minutes and twenty four seconds into the Japanese version, uh, there's that restaurant scene. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. The the there's a woman in there and she's playing the violin in the restaurant. And she's actually playing the instrument. Movies almost never do this, especially with just a little bit of music like like what they have in the background for this. But they did not just have somebody noodling away at a violin on whatever note, and then they dubbed the music in or you know mixed it in. But instead, no, that the woman there is actually playing the notes and the bow movements that are exact. And but movies very often don't do that, and so major props to whoever decided to do it that way. But it's it looks it's super realistic because it is. And you being a violinist, that is something that you would pick up on. Yeah, I don't know if anybody picked up on that as as much, but I certainly did because when I see like a string quartet or whatever in a movie, there's so many times everybody's just playing nonsense notes. Or they're just, uh, you know, they're mimicking playing a violin or a cello or whatever. And they then you obviously hear the, the sound mixer put in the music then. But in this time, I'm like, wait a minute, she's actually playing that. Wow, that is so cool. You, you never see that. Uh, the other one that I have is one hour and 27 minutes into the Japanese version. There is a really, really nice wide shot of Rodan on the left. Godzilla in the middle and King Ghidorah on the right, all in the background. And then the military and with their troops and the military vehicles are all in the foreground and try to find it really. It, it, they only, they don't show it very much, but it is an incredibly beautiful looking shot. You know, another thing that is a bit different in terms of the cinematography in this, if you look at the end of the movie, they do, these close-up kind of ground-level shots of Godzilla's feet crushing houses. Yes, that's I was going to say that. Yeah, that that's is not so awesome. something. Yeah, that's not something that you see very often, at least in the Showa era. No. I think they try it a little bit more later, but they don't really do that much. And they my do it under- a lot in this. Yeah, and my understanding is that actually there were more shots like that that they ended up not using so they filmed more than they used but i like which is really interesting you know is in uh he's in the the factory area and he's like stomping through the the factory building 
Oh yeah. And then Godzilla's uh, smashing all of those houses like one after another after yeah, another. It's really he's. They should have done that more in in these in these movies like that. I think it's really effective. Yeah. It ta- it's like it sort of puts us on the human scale, and then it it shows us just how utterly big Godzilla's feet are, and and how how uh, efficiently he can uh, really do damage. Yeah. Insert bad urban renewal joke here. One thing that's not included, which I would have really paid to see, is they mention how Ghidorah is in the United States or the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, the Western Hemisphere. In general. Yeah. yeah. And they, in the dub version, it's the United uh-huh. States. And I, I really would have been interested to see that. That would have been so cool. I, I can understand why they didn't, but that would have been awesome. If only we can have a kaiju film where Ghidorah comes to the U.S. It'd be awesome. I've read a book where that happens, but yeah, it would have been great to see that on film. The other noteworthy thing about the effects in this is this is the first time in a Godzilla movie. We had already seen stuff like this in Mothra, but this is the first Godzilla movie that used what's commonly called mecha, which are these fictional vehicles usually used by the military. The The most famous example would be the what's called, what's called the Mazer Cannons. But in this one, you get kind of the forerunners to that, which are these uh, these vehicles that are broadcasting this, uh, the energy waves that block the signals for the Zillion technology. So it's, uh, it's very noteworthy for that because you start seeing stuff like this starting to show up a lot more. And it helps to move the series away from the... From you know, the more realistic films that we were getting a lot, especially in the 50s, to the more fantastical world that we start, uh, you know, uh, that starts to be developed as the show series goes on. Gadgetry. Yeah, this is where we start seeing gadgetry in the Godzilla films, really. That sort of plugs into how in the Showa era series of this film, of these films, we end up with the scientists are extremely trusted and politicians are not trusted as much. And, uh, and back in the American films, they don't trust scientists as much, and science is looked at as a little bit more suspect. But uh, really, the, the scientists are often the heroes in the Showa era films. But something that's really interesting in this is that, and, and it's kind of a small thing, but it, it fascinates me, is that when Fuji and Glenn come onto Planet X, one of the first things that they do is they plant a flagpole that has three flags on it. It has the UN flag, the Japanese flag, and the American flag, which is terribly appropriate because you have a Japanese astronaut and an American astronaut. And yeah, the, the UN flag makes sense since you know they're there representing representing the world, and they're you know they're working for a you know the World Space Agency. So I'm guessing it might be something controlled by the UN in this universe. But what I find fascinating about it is that, you know, they're planning it on a planet that is rocky. And it wasn't, and this was in 1965, four years before the lunar landing. That sort of imagery is, you know, well known to us now because of the lunar landing, you know, and that, that famous uh, scene of the astronauts planting the American flag on, you know, on the surface of the moon. This predated it. And then what's interesting is that the movie was released in the United States in 1970, so five years later, and a year after the lunar landing. So for the American audience, that precedent is lost, but they're familiar with that sort of imagery because of the lunar landing. That is really interesting. But that, and then it kind of segues into, because there's five whole years in between the release of one and the other, 
I sort of wonder if by 1970, perhaps this film to the American audience might have even looked a little bit dated. I have a feeling it would have seemed kind of quaint. Because a lot happened in those five years, like a whole lot. And so I'm not sure exactly what the what the time difference would have been to people who at that time are watching it. Maybe not much, but I'm not sure. It definitely looks very 60s. And I mean, I know yeah. the 70s had just started, but it still probably would have seemed a little out of date. Mid 60s and late 60s. There's a big difference between films a lot of times when you when you uh, especially with new releases, of course. It should be noted that this is the first Godzilla movie to make use of stock footage, which is an often maligned, I guess you could say, filmmaking technique that gets used in these movies, particularly as time goes on and the budgets got smaller. It started to be used a heck of a lot more. And it's only in a few shots. You know, it's there's footage from Rodan and Gator the Three-Headed Monster and Mothra, and it's used in some places when the three monsters are attacking various places on Earth. I can understand why people don't like it. They would prefer to see something new. It can come across as cheap and lazy. But, but I, there's know. a time component to this. Remember, like, not everybody you know, had reels of this at home. You know, there wasn't that kind of, there wasn't that kind of thing going on. And so people weren't able to just bring these films up whenever. So I don't know if I think it was probably easier to pass off footage from these other movies to a theater audience later. And I think, I don't think they did it gratuitously either. I think it all had a purpose. And plus I think back then I would have liked to see that footage again anyway. And and it wasn't something that they'd seen the movie a million times and had a 4k Blu-ray of it at home. (laughs) And so like, I think there's a certain amount of, there's, I think there's a line, not a definite line, but I think there is a line at some point where there's a difference between gratuitously just throwing everything in the kitchen sink in versus picking the right places to, to place this footage into. I think, and I think maybe using that footage, I think it might've saved them money elsewhere that that money ended up getting used in other places. And like, like we said, the, the sci-fi parts of it or like the, the sets, the costumes, whatever, special effects, that kind of thing. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you there. We've been trying to keep track of the whole falling into the ocean at the end part. Uh, and that happens again, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, by the end of this movie, Rodan picks up Godzilla and then flies at Geeter and uses Godzilla as a battering ram. And then the three of them fall off a cliff into the ocean. Yeah, so this we're, we're really racking up a lot of endings like this. But it, again, like we've said, it's a way for uh, it's a way to end things without killing the monsters. And so we're able to have them back later. Yeah. Although in this case, Ghidorah does come out of the water and retreat back into space. Something he does a lot. <laughs> I wanted to mention, in the English version of this, we have a wonderful little voice that comes in when the aliens uh, in the UFOs show up at the uh, space headquarters. And we have this woman, and she's 
screams. <laughs> Look out the window! It's so melodramatic. Oh, it's it just completely throws a wrench into what's going on. It's because instead of just oh look out the window, it's like whoa. It's freakishly melodramatic. It it, it I I laugh. I think it's hilarious every time <laughs> I see the English version and this happens. And when I show this movie to people, I show them the Japanese version. But then I'm like, wait a minute. And I show and I after the Japanese version ends, I show them that part. Because it is so hilarious, but it it is just so, uh, it, it I think it brings you out of the movie, so massively. I wonder what their th- their thinking was behind that, deciding to dub it like that. I don't know who they got to do it. But it was just, or is this really a horrific scream? And uh, I I don't know. It's uh, I I could almost see the people doing this like laughing after they do it, but I'm not. We can never be sure. Yeah. <laughs> this concludes part two of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we choose an issue that either the movie brought up directly or was going on in Japan at the time the movie was released. So for this episode, we chose the uh, implications, I would say, uh, foreign policy-wise, of the entire alien invasion mainly with the zillions like as in this movie in particular even though there are a lot of alien invasions later we're going to try to concentrate on this one in particular because uh, not only is this one the first one but this is one of the biggest uh, biggest moments in the whole series with alien invasions so i was watching this movie and it was probably the 30th time who knows how many times i've seen this movie but i i was watching it and i sort of thought uh oh, you don't suppose that? Uh oh, and it just sort of started clicking with me because I'm like, well, you don't suppose what this means is that it's symbolic of? Oh, because I, I there's only one country that's invaded Japan successfully. Successfully, yeah, yeah. And I thought, well, hmm, I'm sure this can't be anything really bad or is it i don't know and so i had to put a lot of thought into it and and just think about what the what exactly the forces at play were with with this alien invasion the plot involving repelling alien invaders is really popular it's a really popular type of story in japan for obvious reasons well it's popular around the world really i mean you know it was it was invented by hg wells with war of the worlds but yeah. I think it's part of the Japanese psyche, too, though. They're on a very small area of land. Not much of it is arable. Uh, it's, it's their land, too. You know, Japan is, an, is pretty much an ethnically-based state. And so there, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of part of the national spirit of the Japanese that has to do with, with in, invasions and especially with, with uh, the history that, has been, uh, that, that Japan has established, along with the isolationism uh, that was uh, present uh, during a, a lot of Japan's uh, history. It's historically been an insular country that's been resistant to outsiders and their influences, and this goes back for hundreds of years. It's worth noting that Japan is being invaded an awful lot in these movies. Uh, <laughs> invaders are coming from space. They're from coming from underground. They're coming from underwater. They're coming from all these places all over. And in, in this movie, Japan 
I think more than I think more than just about any other of these movies, with a couple of exceptions, a little bit. But these zillions are really manipulative, like they're master manipulators, and they're liars. Yes, a lot, and they make a lot of promises that don't come true. Yeah, I mean they they dangle the carrot of a cancer cure in front of uh, in front of the humans. Very and, enticing. Yeah, it's a very enticing thing. Yeah, you know? it's like and the they, scientific holy grail to a lot of people in the scientific community. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, and all all the humans had to do was let them have a couple of monsters. Yeah, that seems they, like that a they fair may trade. Or may not have even wanted. Yeah, seems like a fair trade. But instead, they end up giving up protection in a deceptive deal that they end up getting the bad end of. And so I wonder how like how all of this uh, really really plays into everything but at this point it's 1965 it's uh well 20 years after the end of the war it's not it's not a huge amount of time after the war it's not right after uh but it is uh it's not that long considering you know world war ii was such a great big deal to the japanese and everybody else in the world that had to go through it but it was certainly enough time for things about the war to percolate, you know, give them time to contemplate, you know, what has happened since the war, what the consequences were. Yeah, and stuff like the security treaty, which uh, that was only four years or five years before uh, this movie was made. And we talked about that in the the Mothra episode about how big of a deal uh, the alliance was at the time. But that's what they essentially propose. The Zillions propose to make an alliance. Yeah, more or less. I mean, the the Zillions, actually, the the Zillions are coming to them. At, you know, they're presenting themselves as being at a point of weakness. Is what's going on? Is they're saying, you know, we have Ghidorah here. He's ravaged our planet. We need your help. Mm-hmm. You know, we want you to let us have Godzilla and Rodan because they've defeated Ghidorah for you on your planet. So we want them to do the same thing for us. So they're supplicating themselves. They're supplicating themselves. Yeah. They're really making it look like that Earth is the one who is, you know, has the advantage in this. They really are pulling the wool over their uh, over the human's eyes in this by making it look like, you know, that this advanced technological society is in desperate need of their help. So even though that the humans are not nearly on par with them in terms of technology. There's something they could do for them. And then in exchange, they're going to give them this huge scientific breakthrough that is going to be a tremendous asset to them. I mean, eliminating cancer is a huge deal. Another thing I thought of, because I have a bit of international training and everything, I've been in international relations for a long time in my studies, And uh, it's funny how the initial solution to avoid Monster Zero while on Planet X is to wait until he leaves. I sort of of wonder if that's like more American symbolism. But uh, the the control of Planet X, he offers to be in in cooperation. And and then when they're they're leaving uh, Planet X to go bring this deal back to Earth, uh, the controller does that evil laugh. and, And wow, the... And then the scientists and the doctors and like the women's group and the peace promoters, <laughs> uh, they are all totally in the tank 
for this alien race that nobody knows anything about that offer a deal that sounds too good to be true. Yeah, they are. They buy it hook, line, and sinker. But they they specifically mention colony status, which that has some interesting implications. Yeah, that uh, was one of, wise. That was one of the most fascinating things for me. I mean, it's I've seen this movie multiple times. I've heard that term a lot, but it was in watching this now, knowing what I know now, that that suddenly became a lot more interesting because it's not often that I see an alien invasion movie, whether it's Japanese or American, where that sort of terminology is used. Mm-hmm. It's and a I very it spe- deliberate. Yeah, it's a very deliberate and specific thing to say. You will become a colony world of Planet X. Additionally, if we don't comply, like when they when they give us the cassette tape that has the supposed cancer cure and it's the ultimatum, they say that they will exterminate humanity if we do not comply with colony status. Now, uh, given the history with uh, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and everything else, that, that is, uh, well, kind of exactly what happened. And so I wonder how much symbolism is, is there, too. I mean, w- once you have these things start stacking up, I mean, I forget, it, it was like a few years ago that, that this happened, but uh, I, was, I kept thinking about this going, wow, okay, so we have threat of extermination, we have colony status, we have a lot of stuff going on here. Like once the alliance happens, the new partner in this alliance becomes their new ruler, ready with control of the kaiju to blast them into the Stone Age if they don't comply with all the orders from here on out. And that's binational relations symbolism there quite a bit. But I'm sure that if the U.S. was ever invaded by anyone and we had an alliance with a give-and-take component to it sometimes, as binational relations between great powers can get, we'd complain that we were being ordered around from time to time. Yeah, Brian, that was uh, something you and I were talking about beforehand. I was going to say, if there was any sort of historical precedent for how the controller and the zillions conducted themselves, it would have been Commodore Perry and the coming of the black ships in 1853, which was a huge seminal event in the history of Japan because it was really the first moment when Japan had opened itself up to the world. After a long period of isolationism. I could see some people in Japan looking back on that event and with disdain, you know, being disappointed with it and thinking that they were promised something that they didn't really get. So... Like, the lesson in this story, I, I wonder, like, the lesson, at least to the Japanese who are who watch this, like, is it you should be aware of enemy outsiders who disguise themselves as friends? Like, when the enemies unmask themselves as invaders, there's a division in society between those who want to fight to the bitter end versus those who want to give in and be a colony to the aliens. I mean, that's another sort of end, end of the World War II connection there because I, I think it's remarkable that that part where it shows like the newspapers and the photos of stuff, like one of the photos I know was from World War II, uh, but th- there's, uh, there's that division. And like in Independence Day, there's not that division. No, there isn't. That's one of the things that I thought was remarkable about this movie and quite different. Um, 
is compared to especially to American films. Yeah, just like an Independence Day, like you said, but it's not just Independence Day. It's pretty much any American-made alien invasion movie. There's no right. division. Right. That you know there is. It's always we're going to unite against the invaders and we are going to beat them. You know whether it's just the United States who are, who are doing it or if it does involve people. You know, from the rest of the world. The idea is always humanity is going to band together and they are going to win. Whereas in this case, and it's just a montage. It's just a short montage in this movie. But and yet I think, there's so much meaning in just that the, tiny yeah, little bit. And, and I think in a lot of ways it actually might even be the more realistic thing that would happen. As I do think if you were facing facing death, a, yeah, facing a situation facing a situation like this where you had invaders who were saying comply by this time, or we will come and we will kill you. Yeah, there would, in every city with yeah. Peter Rodan and Godzilla combined. Yeah, which you know that that's futile. Yeah, there would be some people who would say we are going to fight them, and then there would be some who would say no, we should just surrender. That's the smarter, safer thing to do. Like everybody who was uh, at the Diet Building, where where they're like, oh, we totally want to do this deal, blah blah blah. I mean, would I don't know if those would be the same people that would be saying let's just be a colony and, and still survive and, and still have our cities and, and not all die of starvation, et cetera. It, it is remarkable. When you look at a lot of science fiction films uh, from the United States, particularly in the 1950s, you get a glimpse at the zeitgeist and the psyche that was going on at the time. You have something like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is it's an alien invasion movie, but it's an alien invasion movie about this insidious infiltration that goes on because you have these pods that give off these alien spores that take control of people against their wills and turn them into their thralls. And that was, that was very much the sort of thing that was on the mind, uh, on the minds of Americans at the time because of the red scare, they were terrified. Not so much. I mean, yeah, there was the tension about there being a nuclear war, but they were as much if not more afraid of the idea that the Soviets would, hide among them and would infiltrate their country and convert them all to their ideology via exporting communism yeah yeah it would be this this soft invasion invasion of ideas invasion from within yeah that's what terrified them and you see a lot of films from that time that reflect that sort of an idea does that mean that the aliens in these movies are metaphors for the soviets not necessarily, but it certainly was influenced by what was going on at the time. And I think the same thing can be said about these, you know, these uh, about Monster Zero and, you know, the, and the subsequent films that are like this. You know, it's not meant to be taken literally. It's a reflection of what was on their minds and where they're drawing their ideas from. Because a lot of the Cold War was an invasion of ideas and a war of ideas. And about how to run society and how to, how to organize society. Another interesting thing to note is that Stephen Hawking, who said, uh, he's been, I don't know if anybody's been keeping track of this lately, but uh, he's said that if aliens do contact us or especially come to Earth, they are probably here for our resources or something else that isn't in our best interest. And he said that the, that the default attitude that we should take is to not trust them. I think that's incredibly 
amazing. I think that's so interesting. I mean, I fear that he could be right. I mean, why else did anybody come here? Just kidding. But <laughs> that is definitely something, though, because what if aliens who do make contact with us, hypothetically, could they just be survivors of a dying or already dead planet? Or could they be the equivalent of pirates? They go to other worlds, take them over, steal resources for the mother country or mother planet of theirs. And that is definitely something that should be considered, as opposed to uh, we. You know, when somebody says, we come in peace, if they ever came, I don't think I'd trust it. I mean, I, I, I really think Stephen Hawking's on to something with this. And I don't know where that really leaves us, but it, it is a very interesting thing to, uh, to consider. I have heard arguments against that, I will admit. Just to offer a counterpoint, you know, the, uh, I don't remember exactly what the arguments were, but essentially it was that, you know, if you have a race that is advanced enough that they can travel interstellar distances, the argument goes that you know, they would have had to have gotten to the point as a society where they had put their differences aside in order to develop technology like that and then to travel out into space. So the argument goes that they would be benevolent. They would not be the type to show up on another planet and conquer it. Maybe, I guess. I mean, I, I think a lot of it, though, depends on resources and how valuable whatever they, you know, however valuable they think resources are. I mean, like, like in this case, what was it? Water one of the absolute most important things to life. And so, I mean, in a way, this is exactly what Hawking was kind of talking about, was they, they want Earth not for, any, for no reason other than the water, probably among other resources. It sort of depends. Uh, I mean, planets have a life cycle, and when a civilization starts on a planet, sometimes it might not even matter how advanced they are at, at some point, maybe the water faucet just runs out and they have to go somewhere else. And at that point, they realize that they, they realize their own vulnerability. And then they think, well, we have enough technology to do whatever we want. So I, we don't, you know, if there's a planet that we find that we want, the people who are living on it might be a moot point. And you would be amazed what desperation will make even the most rational and advanced people do. Also important here is, I definitely don't want to say that, that somehow the Zillions are America or are directly supposed to be the United States, etc. And I don't, because that would imply that this is some sort of an anti-American film. I don't <laughs> believe it is. And you know why? Because there's an American actor in this. Yeah. And he gets into a relationship with you know, sure she's an alien or whatever, but she's a Japanese actress, mm -hmm. and so there's definitely that implication, and so it would be really odd to have some you know a really explicitly which is not anti-American film, and then have one of its biggest stars in there as an American actor. It would be very much a contradiction. Absolutely. You know, if, if even if even if you've created this fictional race as a stand-in for Americans. You also have an American fighting your representation of Americans. That that isn't going to work. You and know? at the same time, the, there's a an implied 
cultural divide that is actually bridged because we have an American actor and a Japanese actress that even though they're playing characters, they do end up in, you know, falling in love with each other. And, and that's, so there, there's that too. And it's not presented as bad whatsoever. Nobody in the movie reacts to it negatively. It's treated as if it's normal. There's also the the idea of repelling alien invaders in Japanese society. It's it's is it kind of like a at this point is it kind of like a fantasy fulfillment? I think you know, it'd because be a, they do get rid of them. I think it'd be a fantasy fulfillment really for anybody. I mean, the, the United the, States was invaded in 1812. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would be a fantasy it would be a fantasy fulfillment really for anybody. I mean, think back to, you know, people back in 1985 watching Red Dawn. You know, that wasn't an alien invasion. That was the Soviets. But that was a very real fear at the Mm -hmm. time. And the idea that, you know, if the Soviets would ever try something like that, that we as Americans could, you know, could rise up and beat them. And these weren't soldiers. These were high school kids who just knew how to survive in the wilderness. And they liberate their town from the Soviets. That would be an exciting thing for anybody. You know, we would all like to sit there and say, if I was in that situation, I could do this. I wonder how literal this is supposed to be. I really don't think it's supposed to be that literal. I I think there's a lot of symbolism and it really plugs into the zeitgeist and the feelings of the time that we're in Japan. And I think Sekizawa was really a brilliant man when it came to symbolism. And when you have a story like this with so much symbolism it's way, way more interesting than just being outright explicit and saying, okay, this equals this, that equals that. That's too easy. Yeah, and by having, I don't want to say ambiguity, but having that, having things be open to interpretation like that, it, it fosters discussions exactly like what we're having now. You stop and you think about things, you know, you think about how countries relate to each other. You think about, how would I respond in a situation like that by making it open-ended enough like that? I think it actually broadens the appeal and makes, makes the discussion that much richer. Yeah. There's enough of a separation between real life and the movie. And I think there should be none of these movies are documentaries for heaven's sake. I mean, there's really a, the symbolism in this movie is particularly rich. There's a lot to, think about there's really a lot of meat to the story it's really awesome in that way that's why it's one of my favorite ones and i i I hope that by listening to this if any of you out there have just kind of looked at this as just being kind of a you know a fun 60s sci-fi alien invasion movie like everything else that was you know being produced at the time and i'm not going to deny that you know that it's certainly fun and enjoyable but if you dig, you start digging into it like we are here, you really start to see that there's there's a lot of substance to this as well. It's not just fun escapist entertainment. Yeah, it's really rich. It's really got a lot going on. And it's uh, very special. There's another topic that uh, I wanted to mark because uh, this year in 1965, something interesting happened in the economy of Japan. And that was when the trade imbalance in Japan, between the U.S. and Japan, was reversed. And so for the first time, Japan started exporting more to the United States than Japan than the United States exported to Japan. And so that trade imbalance 
that that started uh, um, especially right after the war because of Japan having to do so much imports. Uh, now Japan has reached the point where they have become a very powerful export-oriented economy. Uh, at, and the year that this film was made, the economy grew by another 5.81%. And so Japan finally got a trade surplus between uh, Japan and the U.S. So it's very uh, interesting timing. Uh, and, and so it just is another indication that Japan is emerging as a, a more powerful country, uh, as, a, as a very powerful trading nation, and a very productive nation. Before we close out the episode, we would like to dedicate this particular one to Yoshio Tsuchiya, the man who played the controller in this. He uh, unfortunately passed away very recently, and uh, it was a very sad loss. Uh, the guy gave an incredible performance and created an, an amazing, memorable character with the controller in this film. You know, he's going to be very missed by the fandom, but he's been he was in a couple of other Godzilla movies. None of the roles were nearly as iconic as this one was, and he's been in a lot of Kurosawa films as well. So yeah, his, I've seen him in a lot of Kurosawa. Yeah, so his his roles have you know are quite diverse, and he's done a lot of things for films in general over in Japan, and you know not just for the the genre stuff. So he's going to be greatly missed. Well, Brian, this has been a fantastic discussion. I was looking forward to this episode, and I'm glad we finally got to do it. But for our next episode, we will be taking a look at Ebira, Horror of the Deep, or, as it's more commonly called, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster. A very underestimated film. I would have to agree with you on that. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. And I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. Sayonara.